What would you do if everyone said they heard your trailer a hundred times? You'd probably make a new one. I'm Justin Sales, the host of The Wedding Scammer, The Ringer's first ever true crime pod. We've been hunting a con man for a few weeks now, and our hunt is coming to an end. Schemes, heartbreak, how to put on a wire. We've covered all this and more, but there are still a few surprises left. Binge The Wedding Scammer wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Tara Palmieri. I'm Puck's senior political correspondent, and this is Somebody's Gotta Win. On this episode, I'm going to get into a new phenomenon, at least one that's coming up in the polls, where we're seeing that the populist movement driven by Trump isn't just attractive to white Rust Belt voters, older voters, um, working class voters. It's appealing to people of color now. Um, And in fact, we're seeing that Trump is actually making gains with black and Hispanic voters and even young voters. And Joe Biden, the Democrat, is actually losing some of these people in, in what is a typical Democratic coalition. So I talked to Republican pollster and strategist Patrick Ruffini, who's also the author of the book Party of the People Inside the Multiracial Populist Coalition about this new phenomenon. But first, there's a lot of news coming out of New Hampshire. So I reached out to our expert, son of New Hampshire, Matthew Bartlett, for what's going on up there. What's the feeling in the cigar shops across the Granite State? Nikki's soaring. Ron's kind of flatlining. Um, but Trump still has a commanding lead. I was just up there uh, last the end of last week uh, after, after the debate. Who was up there? Chris Christie was up there campaigning. He was with uh, Governor New Hampshire Governor uh, Chris Sununu. Uh, Doug Burgum was wheeling around, still on his scooter, unclear what his pathway <laughs> is. Uh, his Vivek Achilles heel has still not been healed, clearly. Yeah, well, what an injury. What a time to be, to, to be injured. Um, he might be on the injured uh, reserve list uh, for president here. Uh, Vivek Ramaswamy was up there. Um, Donald Trump held, held a massive rally. Um, so it continued. And then Dean Phillips is running around there on the Democratic side. So it continues to be quite busy. It's the center of all things political since it is the first in the nation primary state. And they will like they like to remind you of that when you're there. Um, but I think what is so jarring about this new Emerson poll is that, you know, Trump is at 49%, which is actually insane. I don't think we've ever seen a candidate at this point in the primary be almost at 50%. That's kind of nuts, right? Yeah, um, I in, think in you're the right polls. Yeah. Um, I mean, and, if this was any other race, would we be covering it the same? Um, no. you know, is there a chance? No way. But there's still like this 
I think because of the fact that Trump is under investigation and a lot of the polls show that like a conviction could change the game um, and he is, you know, you know, he's been indicted and there's so many charges. So like, I think there's a whole idea that if you just keep like the David alive throughout this whole thing, maybe the second place, you know, second place candidate might have a shot if they make it to Super Tuesday, who who knows? But that's why I think we're all looking at this Emerson poll, which shows that Nikki Haley is now at 18%. She's up 14 percentage points from August when she was at 4%. Um, Chris Christie's sort of flatlined. He's at 9%. But even more interesting is that Ron DeSantis is stagnant and has actually dropped one point since August. And he was you know, the rising star. He was the guy who was supposed to take on Trump and he just keeps declining. And I think um makes sense when you hear that Nikki Haley is meeting with these billionaires like JP Morgan Chase, CEO Jamie Dimon, and now Citadel's Ken Griffin is saying you might give her some money. But I don't know, it feels like a little too late. She's still only at 18%. Can their money really help her at this point? Or maybe they just, it, maybe she can stay in the game for longer if, if she has their cash. Yeah, I think eventually I think take got, on Trump when he's weakened. I think you got a lot of that right. And isn't it funny? I mean, everybody thought Nikki Haley was going to be the first in this race and maybe the first out of this race. I mean, she had a hard summer. Her numbers weren't moving, um, but she yet she she was still at it. Ron DeSantis, like you said, I think he even reported in January was beating Trump. And now he's at 7% in New Hampshire. Um, so it's just been very interesting. Chris Christie's still plugging away at 9%. Uh, but Nikki's definitely on the rise. And some people think, you know, she has room to grow in New Hampshire. Um, there are still people that don't know her that are getting introduced through the debates, through the town halls. Um, and let's also see what New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu does, too. He'll be making endorsements. Soon. Right. Oh, yeah. You think his endorsement will matter? I mean, he's not going to be a 100 pound weight, but it could be a 10 pound weight. Um, <laughs> 10 guy's been weight. governor. Okay. Guy's been governor for for the better part of a decade, and I think he's looking to flex some political muscle. Question is, with who? Right, but I felt like he was kind of leaning towards DeSantis at one point. But maybe, perhaps, he sees. I think a big part of these endorsements too is like you don't want to waste it. You want to pick the guy that you think has the best chance of winning, or at least making it far. Otherwise, if you just hand it away, and it's it shows that you don't have much political juice, right? Listen, full disclosure, love the guy. Um, he is out there campaigning with every candidate not named Trump and now not named Vivek. They're in a they're in a big fist fight. Um, but yeah, he loves it. He was out there with DeSantis having the time of his life. And then he campaigned with Nikki Haley um, and looked fantastic. And then he was with Chris Christie the other day. And, he's, and I've heard he's even going to do even more stuff with Christie. So he loves the limelight. He, he you know, you got to think. Uh, I mean, he he was considering a run himself. You got to think, is he out there saying, boy, I wish I did it? Or maybe, maybe or he's thinking 2028. Yeah. It's right, right, years. right. Yeah. Well, it's only four years if it's Trump. And we're assuming it's Trump because we're assuming also that Trump would give up the office in four years, which who even knows by then he might be monarch. Uh, right. uh, we don't we don't really know what's going to happen. Um, yeah. So this is this is interesting to see Nikki Haley rising. She continues to go up, but still so far behind Donald Trump. Um, other news out of New Hampshire. You guys are still going to hold a primary on the Democratic side, despite the fact the DNC rearranged their calendar to benefit the sitting president. They want to start in South Carolina, the state that gave Joe Biden the nomination because um, African-American voters like Joe Biden and it helped deliver him the nomination. He did not win the primary in New Hampshire. He did not win the primary in Iowa um, in 
2020. And so they just don't, you know, they're setting their guy up for win to win. But in fact, you know, in New Hampshire, they're claiming that he is defying their state constitutional laws by not making them the first primary state. And so they're holding the primary without him, without him even being on the ballot. That's kind of crazy. The president of the United States is not going to be on the ballot in New Hampshire. Explain to me the psyche of the New Hampshire voter, why they're willing to do this. Uh, I mean, pissy in the first, that's how you describe them. <laughs> all of them, all of us. Um, but I mean, what an unforced error this was by by Joe Biden and the team, wherever, the White House, DNC. Um, you know, if Donald Trump somehow was worried about New Hampshire and said Alabama is going to go first, there would be reams of paper written about how he, this dictator is trying to rig democracy in his favor. Um, yet Joe Biden thought he was, this was a brilliant idea. South Carolina, they went down there first in the nation. Well, my gosh, I think, I think Joe Biden probably would, may, even still, win a, a writing campaign right now. He has no real challengers. Marion Williamson. They're working Dean. really hard at it, the Democrats right now, to make sure that he wins a writing campaign because that would be really embarrassing. Even if the delegates don't matter, as they're saying, that these delegates well, don't count. Forget your delegates, but like, is South Carolina somehow a swing state? Do we think South Carolina is going to go uh, blue in the general? Give me a break. But New Hampshire, they have screwed it up so much that New Hampshire could absolutely, I would even say, is a battleground state. Donald Trump was supposed to get blown out in 2016, lose by 10 points. He lost by 2,000 votes. Now, Joe Biden beat Donald Trump in New Hampshire by a solid seven and a half points. But I think right now, this election is going to be much closer to a 2016 than a 2020. And I do not understand the benefit, the upside that the White House is getting by snubbing New Hampshire, because there's tremendous downside and tremendous da danger right now in a general election. Could you see, like, I guess, uh, I guess uh, RFK Jr. is is will likely run on the independent ticket. He said he's not running as a Democrat, but could you see Dean, Dean Phillips on the ballot and like beating Biden? Would they do that? Would Democratic voters do that as like an fu to Biden? Uh, anything is possible. I, I think it's going to be very hard for Dean Phillips to, you know, catch running for president is hard, right? All these people on the sidelines. I, 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 I always loved, you know, can young can jump in late and, and, and be the nominee or something. More people have climbed Mount Everest than have successfully run for president. Let's remember that. It's very difficult to get name ID. It's very difficult to get an organization. You know, we're a couple months away and Dean Phillips thinks he's just going to show up and and win it. Listen, he might uh, because there's no other options, but you still have people coming out. I think more people might come out to write in Joe Biden or Joe or Biden uh, on the ballot um, than, than look at Dean Phillips. Okay, got it. Just another kind of F you to the, to the big party establishment, the DNC, but, but probably won't make much of an indent on the actual race. But it's interesting to me that you're saying that New Hampshire is a battleground state. We'll see. Yeah, you know, that, yeah, that's we are a purple state. I mean, that's in part why the primary is so good. We have more independents than we have Republicans and Democrats combined, I think. Um, but again, they great. They might pull this off. South Carolina goes first. Forget you, New Hampshire. And then really, really regret this come general election. I mean, you know, he could lose to Trump in a, or, or to a Republican in the general election. But even more so, it looks as if they're absolutely going to have to spend resources there in a very tight race. I, I can't believe that they have now, um, through a combination of errors, um, put New Hampshire on the map and they're going to have to play, play defense there at the very least. Yeah. It's interesting too, to hear the DNC chairman, um, 
Jamie Harrison saying that they chose South Carolina to put Black voters at the front of the pro- process. And they're basically saying New Hampshire voters are just too white to choose. Let's just be clear. That is a, a whole heap of nonsense. This is not about um, a, 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 a racial identity. This is absolutely about ideology. And they were much worried about a progressive challenger. And let me just point this out here. Um, Ro Khanna has been to New Hampshire several times, was there, what, two weeks ago. Uh Hakeem Jeffries is going to be there on December 1st. Pritzker has already been there um, just a couple of days ago. So Democrats continue to show up in New Hampshire. The, you know, the Democratic Party in New Hampshire is very progressive. That was the actual threat to Joe Biden, an ideological, not a race-based argument. And again, this whole rigging of democracy, I think you would probably would have, you know, won the primary. I don't think there would have been a, 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 a massive issue, yet they are causing an actual headache um, further on down the line. I think what they're trying to argue is that the African-American voters tend to be more moderate and they choose candidates like Joe Biden and they feel feel like they're more reflective of the Democratic body and the country at whole. They may want to believe that, but I think the the Democratic Party is going much more progressive than maybe even Joe Biden. Um, And again, this is in the future, in four years, um, we already have people showing up here. Um, We're going to see, I think, a much more stringent left. Um, We've already seen it uh, divides over the uh, Israel and and Hamas war. Um, So we're going to see much more of a progressive uh, politics. And I think New Hampshire will absolutely be on the forefront of playing that out. I just want to go back to one thing that we spoke about earlier about, you know, Nikki Haley rising, Ron DeSantis. You know, Trump is still hitting Ron DeSantis so hard. When that poll came out, their uh, campaign sent it out and to frame it as Ron DeSantis is in fourth place. And I think a big part of the reason why they're doing this and they continue to hit Ron DeSantis rather than Nikki Haley is they know that if Ron is out of the race, the polling shows that most of his voters are going to go to Trump, right? So it only makes Trump more powerful to get rid of Ron. Whereas like, if they get rid of Haley voters, 14%, whatever, 18% now, not that many, they're not going to go to Trump. They're going to go to somebody else. They're probably more likely never Trump voters than they are Trump voters, right? So is that why he just keeps hammering away at DeSantis and he's not really even bothering with quote-unquote bird brain Nikki Haley? I mean, that's about all you're really seeing from him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's strategy. I think it's probably right. Um, you know, DeSantis voters are, are voters that are probably Trump voters that said, eh, he's a bit wacky. I might, I, I worry about him. I'm going to go with a little safer pick um, in their opinion, which is Ron DeSantis. But I also get the feeling, maybe I'm wrong, that this is personal, that Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis, you know, hates Ron DeSantis, wants to destroy him. Even if he left the race, I'm sure he would still uh, put out these press releases, uh, torture him on true social or whatever. Um, you know, Donald Trump is, is a guy that doesn't say, Hey, you ran you ran a spirited race against me. I respect you. He's the, you know, eat shit and die. Sometimes he does. He did that with uh, Francis Suarez. Depends on the guy. He feels like he made Ron DeSantis because he um, endorsed him before his first um, his first governor's race and when he was really struggling and only won by a few thousand votes. Right, right. So and then that's probably part of it. Little bad blood there. Yeah. And then the and then he rose up to take on Donald Trump himself, and it didn't really work out. Well, we'll see. Anything's possible. Well, we'll definitely check in with you as this race pseudo heats up, or at least the race is second is on the back burner and maybe getting a little warmer, lukewarm. We'll see. Yeah, I think that's fair. It's getting colder and race might be heating up. Maybe. We'll see. Uh, Thanks, Matthew. Yay. And now we're going to get into the meat of this episode with Patrick Ruffini about this emerging working class Republican majority. And it turns out they're not all white like we thought. 
So Patrick, the news right now is that Trump is making gains among non-white voters. According to a recent New York Times poll, 22% of Black voters in six of the most important battleground states said they would support former President Donald Trump. Um, 71% obviously said that they would back Joe Biden. But Trump just won 8% of the Black vote in 2020 and 6% in 2016. And no Republican has ever in recent history has gotten more than 12% of the Black vote, right? So this is pretty big. This is a pretty big deal to see Trump jump this much to 22% of Black voters. It's threatening to break up the Biden coalition. You write that it's become a four-alarm fire for Democrats. What's happening here? Yeah, no, I think that there is uh, really a cross-cutting shift among working-class voters of all racial and ethnic backgrounds uh, towards Donald Trump. Uh, That obviously started in 2016 when he realigned the white working class in uh, the upper Midwest and uh, won the election in a surprise um, because there were many of those voters in those key battleground states. And then in 2020, you saw him realign Hispanic voters, particularly in Florida, um, come very close in Nevada, um, but and also generally speaking, come pretty close in the election uh, based on his strength and based on his unexpected strength with these uh, voters of color, Hispanics, Asians, new immigrant groups. Now we're seeing more evidence of an uptick among black voters in the 2024 polling and uh, data that I've just been like uncovering. Uh, it, it shows that. Uh, Among in states uh, in like Florida, North Carolina, um, there's been a huge uptick in new voter registration uh, that are Republicans among black voters. I mean, it's gone from 4% to 15% in Florida. It's 4% to 8% in North Carolina. Um, And that's all happened since 2020. These numbers were, uh, you know, same kinds of numbers were happening with Hispanics prior to the 2020 election. So we could be seeing at last a shift. But uh, certainly, I, I don't think Republicans are should count their eggs before they hatch at, at the moment. They've been proclaiming that this vote is going to shift. But if it did shift, it would be significant. Um, it would mean that, um, you know, if you really just narrow, it's it's not that Republicans are going to win the black vote. But if you just really narrow it by 10 points, that's basically, uh, you know, a point or two on the popular vote, um, which could make a difference in a lot of these battleground states. OK, so the on the flip side, to me, it shows that the Biden coalition is eroding, right? Um His coalition was supposed to be made up of Black, Hispanic, younger voters. And that's another thing that's showing up in the polls, that younger voters are showing a propensity towards uh, Donald Trump. I mean, you're a Republican pollster. um, So I'm just curious, like, what do you think is happening to the Republican Party? Is this a party thing or is this a Trump thing? Like, is it just Trump is this magnetic you know, populist once in a generation character that is bringing over this unexpected coalition? Or is this something that the Republican Party has been working to all this time? Because, you know, when I look back at the um, Romney-Obama election in 2012, you know, Romney was considered this kind of elitist, out-of-touch, rich corporate Republican, right? Up against President Obama. And now here we go, flip to Donald Trump. He's winning working class, 
non-educated um, voters. And now in this next election, and he looks like he's bringing over multiracial working class voters, perhaps without diploma. So I don't know, like, what's going on? Is this the party or is it just the candidates? Uh, I think Trump is the catalyst. Trump is the catalyst for uh, a, a shift um, starting in 2016 with the white working class. And uh, you really talk about this in terms, uh, the term that's used for this is education polarization. This idea, if you have a degree, you're voting Democratic. If you don't have a degree, uh, you're more likely to vote Republican. But in 2016, it was basically a white phenomenon only. Um, you didn't really see that happening among non-white voters until it started to more so in 2020. But uh, I really do think that uh, these two things are related. The fact that you have communities of color that are largely working class, largely don't have degrees, are shifting, I think, in general, in response to the ways that the parties are shifting, where you have Donald Trump, who is more of a populist, compared to a Mitt Romney, who was more of a genteel, old-school Republican. We have... Country club Republican. <laughs> and, you know, the party it used to be the Republicans are the party of the country club. Now, with that being said, I think Trump's personality is certainly a magnet for some voters. He also repelled some voters, right? So it works both ways. But I do think that this is part of a long running realignment that we've seen over the course of the last 50 years, starting in you know, 1960s and 1970s, when you first started seeing Republicans really being able to appeal to the hard hat worker against the anti-war protester. And you saw a shift then. You saw a shift in the year 2000 when the famous red-blue map first came into being. And then you saw a shift forward in 2016, and it's all been going in the same direction. It's all also been going in the same direction in other countries that have not had Donald Trump, that have not had this populism in exactly the same way. And so, There's a lot of populism, though, moving around the world globally. Right. I mean, you saw Brexit. Nigel Farage is basically a Donald Trump-like character, right, who was able to propel Brexit. Marine Le Pen in France. Bolsonaro in Brazil. Obviously, he's out of power now. But there's the populist current isn't just in America. I said right. as someone who covered European politics during it this time. It is slightly different, but I, I do think, I think that's right. And what is enabling that is this ongoing shift of working class voters into the parties of the right and you know, often empowering sort of more populist hard right. It's also due to a backlash to globalism, frankly, right? That started around the Obama years, I would say. Yeah, globalism, immigration. Uh, a lot of countries seeing are, are seeing... Uh, backlashes related to immigration. You may start to see backlashes related to net zero uh, carbon emissions, right? If uh, you're talking about shutting down existing industries. And that would, I think, further trigger uh, the shift uh, uh, with, um, you know, kind of non-elite voters, uh, I think, who are sensitive to cost of living concerns. And we've seen how sensitive people are to the cost of living issue in particular and the inflation issue. Uh, let's not forget that. So uh, that right, is something right. that we've seen since 2020. It's interesting because a lot of people I've, you know, you sort of see this in the polls, you hear it like anecdotally, there's a bit of a like nostalgia for Trump. Whether you didn't like Trump, you are nostalgic for 
the time when you felt like your eggs weren't as expensive or the economy, your, your stocks were doing better, your 401k, whatever it is. Like you just felt like more optimism about the economy and he was constantly touting it, right? Of course, like he probably overheated the market and caused the inflation for Biden. Um, but at the end of the day, this is sort of like the same thing happened with Obama when there was a crisis under George W. Bush because of lack of, you know, safeguards around the banking industry. And then it became something that Obama had to deal with. But I thought it was interesting that you say the class divide that we've long talked about in politics is over. It's really a degree divide. It's a college degree voter versus a non-college degree voter. And that is really the difference. And you're seeing these voters with college degrees that would normally vote Republican now choosing to vote for Biden, in fact, rather than voting for Trump because they don't like him as a chaos agent or they don't relate to him as his populist leader as well. Yes. Yeah, so are there enough of him? <laughs> are there enough of them to help Biden along? <laughs> Well, look, I mean, in 2020, it made the difference. So if you look at the coalitions in 2020, it was just enough in a state like Georgia. It was enough in a state like Arizona. You do have these shifts where really the that college-educated voters shifted uh, in uh, 2020. Part of that was you didn't have all these third-party candidates on the ballot. Um, and I think that those voters were voters in transition maybe from being Romney Republicans to now being... Um, uh, let's say anti-Trump Democrats, um, but they just couldn't stand Hillary Clinton. And so uh, what you saw in a place like Georgia was where you had a high third party vote. You also had a pretty decent swing to Joe Biden in uh, 2020 um, uh, because, you know, I mean, the, that th that vote just collapsed. Um, you know, the, the impetus to try to unseat Trump at that time was pretty strong. Now what we're seeing obviously is if people are responding, will always respond in some way to the performance or the perceived performance of the incumbent fairly or unfairly and the economic conditions that are happening under the incumbent. And so while so you're saying it's a referendum right now on Biden, it's a referendum on absolutely a referendum on Joe Biden. It's a referendum, frankly, among these young voters who are not uh, really showing any kind of advantage. Biden should be leading by 20 points among young voters, maybe he'll get some of that back. <laughs> let's not, let's not, I, I don't discount that. But when it becomes a choice. When it becomes a choice, but you, if you have a large number of third-party candidates on the ballot, that really, I think, frustrates the ability to really rally support in a because way. Because they can do protest votes, basically, against Biden and in favor of a, not a third-party candidate, essentially. Yeah, and there's a lot of people, maybe will never vote for Trump, but uh, they may not necessarily show up we may not see as high turnout, or they may vote for a, a third party. Is that what you're seeing in your polling? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that no matter what the third party configuration, um, specifically on this question of third parties, because we do see younger voters in particular gravitating more uh, towards that line, that um, what you see that no matter what, even if it's RFK, right, the conventional wisdom around something like RFK is that, uh, oh, he helps Biden because all of his uh, strongest people who are, are strongly favorable to RFK are all Republicans um, because of his anti-vaccine. You mean like the alt-right? Yeah. The, the right. people the that Steve Bannon exposed to, exposed yeah. to, yeah. Yeah, and and I, I do feel like what, what what is interesting is though, though that that voter that maybe is favorable to Trump and RFK is not really up for grabs for RFK because uh, those are strongly favored. I mean, it's not that they're not being well served by Donald Trump. Uh, you know, if it were maybe a Romney, 
you know, maybe we would see more defection from that camp, but we don't. And where we do see the defection is among that, again, those younger voters, voters of color, uh, those more diverse demographics that are just not really seeing the benefits of the economy right now. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger. Feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Velour XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. What would you say to, I know you're a Republican strategist, pollster, et cetera, but like if you were giving advice to the Democrats, like what would you say? How can they, can they bring this coalition back together? Should they be seeking a new, like should they be reconfiguring their party? Like what, what would you tell them to do to bring this back? Well, you know, I, I mean, I think the things that they can do are probably things they won't do. I think a new new candidate will always help, right? I mean, I think a new candidate in situation will always help, but mechanically, how does that happen? I I I very um, I mean, I think that it's still very unlikely that that happens, no matter how much how much people try to will that into existence. It's not going to happen. Um, but you do see signs of certain candidates. I mean, even in the Kentucky governor's race, there were shifts in positive shifts for Democrats in black precincts, and even in, 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 in indicating for people that, oh, well, maybe this cult for some people saying maybe this coalition will be fine in 2024. But then you go to a state like Louisiana, where the Republican won without a runoff and won with approximately 20 20% of the black vote. He had uh, somebody on the ticket with him that I think won almost a majority, right? Uh, won almost a majority. Um, so there's conflicting signs from different states, but certainly maybe a different candidate could could potentially do it um, because a lot of this dissatisfaction is really related to Biden's age and uh, just negative reactions around his perceived vitality level. I know it's just it's just interesting because it does seem like the Democrats are losing their grip on the common man, right? Like that was their that was their 
voter base. And Biden was supposed to be the guy that could bring that along. And in fact, I mean, South Carolina helped him win the nomination. He was buoyed by Black voters, essentially. And it's just kind of, you know, a few years later to see him struggling with that same group and to perhaps like, I mean, to me, when I saw Trump running to the picket lines in Detroit and, you know, Biden like kind of right behind him or at least, you know, at the same time, it was like, they're both kind of trying to reach the same voter at this point. That's right. And it wasn't just, uh, I mentioned this in my piece in Politico, but it wasn't just uh, that uh, you had Trump doing it. You had a number of elected Republicans and Republicans in these Rust Belt states saying, well, we actually side with the UAW, right? We are on their side in terms of kind of- Crazy to think of that. On the picket line, which is something you absolutely wish would never have seen before. But I use the example in my book of Flint, Michigan. So Flint, Michigan is this old auto town, uh, very blue collar. That was the subject of a 1989 uh, Michael Moore documentary called Roger and Me, uh, coming at the issues in Flint from the left and talking about deindustrialization, talking about sort of corporate raiders who were then associated with the Republican Party. Fast forward to 2015, Flint was obviously the place where you had the Flint water crisis that Hillary Clinton talked a lot about, was something that um, was a huge touchstone for her with Black voters in that primary campaign. But you also had Donald Trump going to Flint and talking about jobs moving overseas to Mexico and China, really kind of flipping the script that it was really Democrats up to that point and the left up to that point that had really kind of the stronger narrative and the stronger pitch to voters in places like Flint and vote for us. And, you know, we will fight these Wall Street corporate raiders who are taking your jobs away and we're going to raise your pay and keep your jobs. And, you know, Trump comes in and says, no, actually, the problem is, well, these industries are going downhill because all these jobs are moving overseas. Now, the real answers are obviously a lot more complicated than either of those narratives. But I think that Trump very convincingly really took an issue away from Democrats in that. And, you know, in 2016, about, uh, you know, Flint shifted by about 20 points towards Trump, um, along with a lot of the rest of the Midwest. It's really, really interesting. But like, I also wonder if it's style, too. I mean, to me, when I hear Trump speaking, I'm from, you know, the suburbs of New uh, of New York. He's from Queens. You know, my family's from right outside of New York City and New Jersey. And, um, you know, he speaks like a guy who works in construction. He talks kind of like a union worker. Uh, my dad works in construction for most of his life. So when I close my eyes and I hear Trump say, like a dog, I'm like, oh my God, I hear my father speaking. Um, but he's a regular guy. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't come off as elitist and he, he is an elite. <laughs> but he just doesn't come off as an elitist. And I wonder if it's just the tone, because like, I mean, you mentioned this in your piece, Bill Clinton, R- Arkansas, rural, you know, draw, seemed to like really pick up the low income workers, right? Um, from the rural states, red states, actually. And that was able, he was able to win the White House. But Al Gore from Massachusetts came off as too elitist. And somehow George W. Bush was able to win over these Southern uh, red, you know, sunbelt states from Bill Clinton. So I just, I don't know. I, I sometimes wonder if it's just the politician and if it's like, if there's just this kind of, they have their appeals. They come off like one of them. Do you know what I mean? And that's, and that's just part of it. 
Sure. I think that's a really valid question. I do think you're right. Also being someone who came from the New York suburbs and, uh, you know, listening to how people already talked about politics. And if you actually go back to how people talk about politics, particularly in the Giuliani era in New York City, I mean, uh, you know, I talk about this in my book, too, that there there is these uh, genteel norms uh, about politics that you kind of see, uh, you know, elsewhere in the country about civil debate. I mean, it's no holds barred combat. And so for Trump to come come from that tradition, I mean, it, it really hearkened back to a lot of the things you would hear uh, in New York, New York City politics. But um, yeah, I think specifically the vibes the energy that he exudes is just a very different kind of energy that I think polarized people. It offended some people with degrees who are like, who is this imposter who is, uh, you know, has no credentials, no real knowledge of the political uh, or policy. Also is saying like flat out lies at the same time, which is extremely frustrating. Yeah. And I think people view that a little differently, right? I mean, it's sort of like the inaccuracies and the lies, right, on one side. Uh, and then, but on the other side, uh, Trump is, for the other type of voter, Trump is speaking like no other politician will, exposing sacred cows, taking on, smashing the political establishment, uh, and telling, I think, for them, what are larger unvarnished truths about the corruption that is going on, at least from their point of view. Um, so I think that that is, there, there was that saying in 2016, right? Uh, Trump's voters uh, take him seriously, but not literally. And a lot of the news media and his opponents take him literally, but not seriously. Yeah, that's fair. But then again, I'm like wondering, what is Trump's economic message? You know what I'm saying? Like he doesn't even have one and everyone's talking about the economy. Biden has Bidenomics. Okay, maybe it's not working. But like, what is Trump's economic message that's resonating with these people right now? Because I don't hear an economic message. I hear a message of vengeance, keeping immigrants out, I guess, ending globalization, taxing, you know, uh, tariffs on China. But I'm not like hearing anything else from him. It's going to be great, you know. I think his message is things were great. Yeah. (laughs) Things were great now in his office. And I think that's really how people are processing this election right now, regardless of the policy stances and proposals. I do think, though, that he has, in 2024 specifically, more so than even 2016 or 2020, really tried to articulate, uh, I think, a little bit more of this working class populist message going after DeSantis, for instance, on Social Security uh, and talking about how we will never touch Social Security, which he touched on in 2016, but made very explicit, I think, within the primary campaign in 2024. But I think you're right, his appeal is not at all and has never been programmatic, I will do X, Y, and Z. It's, um, you know, I think at least now it's look at my performance, the performance when I was there versus... uh, So much of it not even really has anything to do with his job as president, in fact. And that's with every president, right? I mean, every president... You take credit, though. Right. They they take credit for when things go well, and they'll blame the other guy when things go bad. Yeah, no, it's true. I don't know. I just wonder, like, if you were going to guess right now, do you think Trump will win in 2024? I know we're a year out. It's hard to make predictions. Don't worry, I won't hold it to you. 
you know, I won't call you out on it. You know, it's hard to make. Everybody thinks I'm, I'm in the business of making predictions. I said, that's the last thing uh, I want to do and, and will do. I think, look, you would have to rate him a slight favorite right now, despite everything. Now, that could change a lot. Could, there are a lot of contingencies with that. There are the court cases. There's Biden's health. There's so many, there's so many things. The uncertainty bounds on any kind of prediction are pretty... Uh, you know, I would say a pretty substantial. But if you just look at the current state of the polling right now, um, I think you would have to conclude he is something of a favorite, whether he will be in March or June, you know, if a con- <laughs> and certainly if a conviction comes down, which I'm not certain it will, but if it does, that the, would... I think the polls say, yeah, he drops by six points if there's a conviction, something like but that. But I also think we are notoriously bad at, uh, as pollsters, right? We are notoriously bad at per- the f- what pe- people say about future behavior. I remember we stuck a question on our poll um, prior to a Trump indictment. Like, if Trump were indicted, would you still vote for him for the Republican nomination? That also showed he went down. And this was if he were indicted, indicted specifically by the Manhattan DA. And it was not something I really took very... I, I did not know what to make of it. Did not take that necessarily very seriously at the time. And then look what happens. The exact opposite happened. So I'm not saying in a general election that that dynamic that we're seeing with Republican voters is going to be the same, but it's just impossible, I think, right now to predict the fallout. Got it. So you think the convictions are really just too much of a a wild card. Also, I mean, if he's behind bars or like has an ankle bracelet at Mar-a-Lago, that might make it... It It would be tough, let's say. Objectively, it would be tough. So to me, your story feels like a continuation of Hillbilly Elegy. Um, you know, the how Trump won the Rust Belt, how this whole, you know, part of the country um, <clears throat> that saw the abandonment of the, you know, the um, manufacturing um, and coal and everything, how they have sort of, they, they abandoned the Democratic Party and they they went to Trump, right? And now you're saying it's actually... People in cities, multiracial. I don't know if are you saying they're people in cities, but or they're people in suburbs, multiracial, working class people that are now attracted to Trump. I think it's a continuation of both, and I think it's just an essential, uh, really duality in terms of how different people see the world. So I think, um, in particular, I talk about the sort of multiracial populist coalition that does include those hillbilly elegy voters combined with uh, voters of color, mostly urban, not exclusively, increasingly suburban, um, but uh, generally speaking, more working class. And um, and I think you see the kind of exact same thing within the Democratic primary and the Democratic Party in the kind of divide that elected Joe Biden in the South Carolina, where, uh, you know, he really, uh, you know, did not appeal very well to the white college educated or the white voters in Iowa and New Hampshire and wins the nomination with more uh, socially conservative tradition, traditionalist or more moderate black voters in South Carolina. Um, Now, that in general, right? I mean, I think that that has been a strength of the Democratic Party historically that they can encompass more voters, uh, you know, particularly non-white voters who are more moderate. And it's kind of this counterbalance that they don't really ever seem to go off the deep end with who they nominate because you have this kind of counterbalance in most states um, that is pushing for the more moderate 
or the party gets involved, right? Right. (laughs) Now the question is, right, is that political unity under the Democratic banner kind of fraying? Because you you really have in general Black Democrats, but also Hispanic Democrats, Asian American Democrats too, generally have more moderate positions compared to white Democrats and especially white college-educated Democrats who are the intelligentsia, who really are oftentimes driving the staff, the staffing and the policymaking in the party oftentimes. And it's not working class voters who are driving that decision making. Um, And so, uh, you know, what you saw in 2020 was more more voters uh, and non-white voters who also identified as conservative, that, that there are, there's a small but substantial chunk of those voters shifted pretty dramatically towards Trump. I mean, they also could just be second generation or first generation Americans like Hispanics. A lot of them are, you know, they come from Mexico, but they they, or they come into this country. I mean, as someone who's a first generation American, I'm white ethnic, but like, you know, you become American, essentially, like you don't necessarily identify as an immigrant anymore. That is a big part of the story. So you remember, go back to the Republican autopsy in 2012, where, uh, you know, Republicans say they have to moderate on immigration issues or else they're never going to win the Hispanic voter. But you fast forward and, you know, there hasn't before the current border issues, there there was a relative lull in terms of people entering the United States coming across the southern border. Um, What you've had in the last 15 years or so is a Hispanic population that Hispanic population growth had pretty much leveled off. And what you're seeing is more third and fourth generation people, more people who have been in the country for longer, they're making more money as a result. And in that group in particular, what you're seeing is those third and fourth generation folks who are starting to make it, who are starting to make more money, um, they're voting Republican more. I mean, you know, the data there is pretty clear. And so, yeah. They're I Catholic think- generally, right? From Mexico, they're, you know, they tend to, I don't know, that that alone means means usually that they're anti that they're not anti-abortion, at least in the sense that like a lot of Democrats think that they can rally their votes by way of abortion. But actually a lot of um, African-Americans or, you know, evangelicals, Hispanics or Catholic, it's not really a position that even Joe Biden is really hugging that much, the abortion issue as a Catholic. I feel like uh, he's sort of letting, you know, Kamala Harris surrogates um, go after it. But I do, I wonder if it's really as powerful as, of an issue as the Democrats think it is. Well, I think it's, let's be clear, it's a net positive for Democrats. It's really one of the- Oh, definitely. Oh, yeah. Positive, right. Um, but- but I do think But is that, it enough? That's what I wonder. If you're talking about, okay, if our challenge is not necessarily is to really bring back these parts of the coalition that have been straying, that are in danger of not turning out, it's not the issue that you're going to be talking about first front and center, I think. At least on it, it might be in the sense of, you know, you want to appeal to younger women, right? I, I do think like from that point swing uh, voting women maybe that might help but younger women too right who you know probably have uh, views of the issue that align very closely with what the democratic uh, position is but um what i would what i would what i'd say like for, for african-american hispanic voters that's not really the the issue that i think is going to bring them out uh to the polls for democrats um and but in particular the thing i also emphasize to republican audience specifically among Hispanic 
audiences is that it's not really, I mean, there's a little bit of a myth going around Republican circles that, oh, this is a very socially conservative and religious group. And I agree. I agree it is. But in terms of their social issues, I think, are not quite as, uh, I don't think it's quite as much of an opportunity as the economic opportunity uh, that um, Republicans have. Um, The alignment on economic issues with Republicans and particularly the perceived performance of Donald Trump um, when Hispanic incomes are rising, when the economy was going well, um, that in particular uh, is, uh, I think, what's moving people. And that's what you hear. Uh, you know, I've done a lot of polling along the border um, and you hear a lot of frustration around immigration. You hear a lot of frustration about the border in, in a way that aligns very... Because they live on the border, right? live on the border, they see it yeah. in Right. Uh, And that aligns very closely with the Republican message. But you also see a lot of alignment on economic issues. There's also this weird concept of like you get into the country, you become an American and you kind of want to close the door for the next guy. Right. I mean, unless it's chain migration. uh, I mean, it's just interesting because like I see my father who's, you know, very conservative and yet he married an immigrant um, who ended up becoming an American. So it's like it's just it's just, it's, it doesn't make any sense. Like even Donald Trump himself, he married an Eastern European, right? Like, <laughs> and yet he's so anti-immigration. Too, in fact, right? Um, we're all, yeah, from, yeah, right. We're all from different places. Um, and I think that there's a general sentiment, right, that we don't want to be assholes to new immigrants, particularly in these communities. They see, uh, they maybe seen the ugliness of the immigration politics of the past that, um, you know, has not been so much about, well, let's go down to the border, build a wall and arrest people who are actively in the act of illegally crossing the border, which I think is like a slam dunk politically. Uh, And uh, it's something like it took a while for Biden to figure out that that is actually the winning political position among all groups. But, um, you know, in the in the 2000s, right, you had an immigration debate on the right, that was very strident, uh, particularly talking about amnesty for illegals. And those quote unquote illegals were here for, uh, were the people who were here for years and years who uh, were quote unquote taking our jobs, right? And that was the rhetoric. The rhetoric now, I think, is more squarely focused on here is the act, I mean, here is the the dumpster fire, uh, for lack of a better term, that is happening, actually happening right before our eyes. We can see the the helicopter footage of people crossing in. And so I think it's a much easier sell. And it's an easier sell with Hispanics, too, that say, we want humane treatment and we want a reasonable path forward for people who've been in the country for a while. But the most of the emphasis and the debate right now is on squarely on the question of border security. Got it. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on, Patrick. This was really interesting. Um, Everyone should come out and read Patrick Ruffini's new book, Party of the People, Inside the Multiracial Populist Coalition Remaking the GOP. Thanks for joining for another episode of Somebody's Gotta Win. I want to thank my producers, Devin Manzi and Connor Nevins. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, rate it, and share it with your friends. If you like my reporting, go to puck.news slash Tara Palmieri to sign up for my newsletter, The Best and the Brightest. And you can use the discount code Tara20. And I'll see you again on Tuesday.